Welcome to Ride Around the Road, the creative podcast that helps you get those pesky voices out of your head and onto the page. And remember, it's the journey that matters. And today I'm talking to the beautiful Tia Cooper down in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Uh, Hello, Tia. Hi. Hi. Now, I've been really excited uh, to catch up with Tia. I've been trying for some time now, but she couldn't make time for me because there was something really, really important happening. She was working on her book. Now, everyone, we cannot argue with that. And Tia's latest book is coming out in December. It has the most amazing cover that I've seen on books for some time. And it's called The Naturalist Daughter. Uh, Congratulations on your new release, Tia. Thank you. I'm really, really excited about the cover. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Now we're going to unpack. Yeah, we're going to unpack um, Tia's writing today. She's a historical writer here in Australia. Uh, certainly, something that I'm very, very passionate about, and something that, as I said to Tia before, we both have the same interests. We both have the same passions, except she's in a successful Australian author, and I'm still talking about it. Uh, Tia, how long have you been writing? Um, well, forever, really. Um, it took me a long time to get anything published. I started life as a journalist, in actual fact, and then um, that was a long, long time ago. And um, that went by the board, and I became a school teacher. Um, and the first time I decided I was actually going to really try seriously was back in the early 80s and there was a competition in um, the Women's Weekly to write for Mills and Boone and I it was a very rainy Easter holidays and I wrote a book or a story then and submitted it um, and it didn't it won a bottle of perfume I won a bottle of perfume for it and it took me and took me another ooh, 20 plus years <laughs> to try again um, it's, so it's been something I've always wanted to do. And then I retired from teaching and decided it was a do or die job. Um, that was about seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Now Tia wrote or published her first book in 2012. I think it was called The Horse, Horse Thief. She's had several, several books since then, uh, contemporary and historical. Uh, but you're specialising in historical fiction now, is that correct? That's my first love. Yes, I've actually I actually had two books with um, Escape, which came out first. Um, they were they were historicals as e-books, and then I pitched the Horse Thief at the conference in two thousand and fourteen, and that came out in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah. Now, this is an overnight success story, everybody. Uh, Tia wrote her first story in an exercise book, as all of us do, back at school about the gardener. Ooh. I think I read on your website, which was many years ago. Uh, yes, we might not go into too many details about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all, we all have our skeletons in our closet. And now you would have to be one of our, I guess, foremost historical fiction writers, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, here in Australia, especially our romance fiction writers. Is that correct? I don't think so. It sounds very flattering, but um, it's not really something that... No, I don't think I am. I can think of lots of people that come away before me in a list like that. 
Uh, everybody, we know we only have the best and the brightest stars on our podcast, don't we? Today we're going to unpack some of uh, Tia's, I guess, story and, and the skills that she can bring to the rest of us. And we're looking at those wonderful things called research skills. Uh, I've been fossicking around a little bit, as I do when I get, get you guys on to the podcast. Uh, Tia, you certainly know where to go to find your information. Uh, would you like to just maybe start with your love of old museums? I really actually live in an old museum. <laughs> the um, town of Wombai is an old museum. There's no other word for it. It's full of some fairly ancient relics as well. Um, and there's a museum there. Um, and I volunteered down at that museum. Through that museum, I've met some amazing people who mostly live, live around the Wollombi area. And they've been so generous with their time and their information and their skills that um, I couldn't imagine putting a story together without them. Yeah, now that, that's really nice, everybody. Uh, museums are wonderful places to go and quite often you will dig up old newspaper clippings and just something that may trigger something that you might throw into a story. Is that, is that what happens with you? That happens a lot. There's the uh, wonderful time sinkhole that's Trove. I couldn't live without Trove. It's amazing. Um, and we're so lucky to have it in Australia. In the naturalist daughter, there's a... Um, the story goes to England and I was banging my head against the wall just wishing that there was an English version of Trove that I could zip into. One of the best things on Trove is the advertisements. I adore the advertisements because not only do you find out how much something costs but it's the language that's used and, and whether people, um, how they advertise themselves. How And, and I think every time I... I've written anything, it's always come back to an advertisement. Yeah. Now, for everybody who doesn't know, Trove is an online copy of all the old newspapers in Australia. You can find most newspapers on there. If not, you have to duck into your local state library and go back to the old, um, uh, what is it called, the old film that you wind through the machine. But we're really, really privileged and lucky now that most, most things are up on Trove. Sometimes you can't read them, but if you're just starting out and you're writing historical fiction or you're looking for information, newspapers used to be the place to go for writers because they could be trustworthy sources. Not so much nowadays. That's I debatable. <laughs> I stand by <laughs> that back, back in those very early days, that was the only, I guess it was the way of reporting. And it just actually triggered when you said that, Tia. It probably only gave one side of the story. Well, yes, it does. And, and also the, um, in the older newspapers, there's a lot of, um, I suppose, the sort of articles that we'd see in the Sunday magazines that come out with the newspapers, which are very much individual opinions. Um, so you've got to be a little bit careful about what they are or maybe cross-reference them or cover it in the historical note at the end of the book. <laughs> That's the best bit. <laughs> I used to always love reading the about town sections in some, I used to, my, my novel was set over in the West Australian goldfields and I used to love reading the about town section because that's where you got all the fights and who was in jail and what prostitute was doing what and all the rest of it. Uh, I'm guessing with the kind of stories that you write, that kind of detail in miniature is exactly the kind of stuff that you look for. 
It's, it, it's, it's wonderful because you can throw in, you know, just, it just gives a flavour to it, I think, um, and makes it a little bit more authentic. Yeah. Um, we, and it's, go on, I'm sorry. No, you're right. Um, and it, and, and no, I've lost the thread completely. Um, what I was going to say was that it makes it so much more time correct because you're using the right sort of words. You know that they're not going to be wearing nylon petticoats for something, for want of something. <laughs> yeah, I remember everybody I used to, and it was back in the days um, before Trove, and I used to copy out all those beautiful descriptions of wedding dresses and bridal parties and how they'd go off in their horse and carriage. And I thought these details are just gold for a fiction writer, aren't they? Absolutely, yes. It's uh, Trove is, uh, you know, I don't think I could, I, I couldn't write as many books as I've written if I hadn't had access to, to some of the online um, research things. It's just yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Now, everybody, it's um, it's even easier still now if you if you can you can use Trove from home. But even if you do go to the state library, they have this wonderful automatic thing where you can just take photographs and it goes straight onto your USB, and you can come away come away with bucket loads of information. Uh, and the reason I'm sort of harping on about this a little bit, and I'm really excited that Tia has brought it up, is because. To create that authenticity in your novel, as Tia said, you can't do it without being there, smelling it, touching it and feeling it. Uh, that's one of the strengths of your writing, I think, Tia, do you think? I hope. <laughs> it's, um, I think it's something that um, we all strive for. And I think it's something that you get better at with time too. It's... Um, I tend not to worry about it too much when I'm writing first draft and then I go back and um, think, mm, I wonder what it felt like, I wonder what it smelt like, I worry about that. I think it's easier to put those things in once you've nailed the basic plot. So my first drafts are disgusting. They don't have any punctuation in <laughs> They're absolutely revolting. But I do get, it's important, I think, to get this, for me it's important to get the story down first and worry about the other bits later yeah get the story down first everybody um, I'm writing that one down because one of the things that I actively encourage all my students to do is write your story through to the end there's no good polishing it as you go because you may get to the end Tia and discover that there are parts of it you don't even want anymore yes I think with The Naturalist Daughter I probably wrote um, the equivalent of about four books <laughs> um, I discovered but in a way it was really good um I, without giving away too much of the story, it's got it's got a fairly solid backstory, and um, at one stage I was intending to include the backstory as part of the story, and then I didn't. But because I had written it as part of the story, I knew it inside out and back to front, and it it was really helpful in actual fact, in writing it. The other thing I find is that it's not until I start writing that I get to know the characters and I need to get to the very end before I really understand where they're coming from. I mean, you can plot your goal, motivation and conflict until you're blue in the face, but it changes. <laughs> All right, so there's a, a little piece of gold, everybody. You really don't know 
what you're going to write until you write it. And all those plotters out there, uh, I really, really admire you. But the pansy way actually can bring up a few nice surprises because your subconscious is working on your story even when you're not working on your story. Uh, do I do you- plot, though. I should say that. I don't only pant. <laughs> I always consider plotting, you know what's going on ahead of you, um, but not in so much detail that you're bored um, before you get there. That's very true. I think it's important to know how the story is going to end. Not in minute detail, but, you know, you need to know where you're going. Um, so actually I do a lot of plotting. And then and the other problem, of course, with the historical is there's no point in doing the story without some research before, writing the story without some research before, because you might find that that doesn't happen then. You know, you couldn't have it. I, um, I can't remember which book it was. I think it was The Currency Lass. I was charging along and then I discovered that the um, Married Women's Act, I can't remember when it came was introduced but could have massive repercussions to the rest of the story so I'd have to sort of shift the whole thing back a few years so you know you have to have um, some idea of where it's going yeah and one of the problems with time periods is exactly as you said you find yourself expanding out if you're not careful not sure I quite understand what you mean I started researching the, my timber cutter's daughter and I started at 2008 and suddenly I found myself in the two, um, sorry, 1908, and I found myself in 1930-something and I thought that's too big a time span for the novel that I'm writing and I had to pair it right back. Do you, do you find that you keep yourself under control or is, does that come with experience? Um, one of the things that I, that I have found is that as my, and that's the advantage of sticking with Australian um, historicals and particularly pretty much staying in the same area. The more you do, the, the better idea you have of the history, it's stuck in your head. So you can make educated guesses and not get caught out. But it's something, um, it still happens, but it, it's a lot better than it was to begin with. <laughs> Yeah. Now, getting caught out, uh, living in the same area, now we're talking about uh, Wollombi, and all I know about Wollombi is that it's got this beautiful national park up the back of Maitland somewhere, and it's in some parts of it, it's really inaccessible, isn't it? Am I in the right area down the back of the Hunter Valley? Um, Maitland's about an hour away from here, um, yeah. but around Wollombi is the Yengo National Park, which is um, of massive um, Koori significance. Um, and... Yeah, it's um, yeah, there are pla- there are areas that nobody's been. I've got I I actually live on a hundred acres, and ninety five of it's under a conservation order. And every time I'm technically nobody's allowed up there except me, and the fire brigade if something goes wrong. Um, and I'm convinced that you know every time I go up there that I find this little patch of land that nobody else has ever stood on, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and and quite um, I guess fodder for the um fiction writer's imagination as well oh yes yeah. yes and and also it's really good if you get stuck because i can just go for a walk and you know i know what it smells like and i know because because it's not very built up in this area um and many of the buildings in the village are original and they date back to the um what, 1840s mm-hmm. and and a bit after that up to the 
end of the yeah, 19th century. And so the shop is, the shop, it's still the same as it always was with its big wooden bins and things. So it makes it nice and easy. Yeah. And, and have, it, yeah, sorry. Sorry, go on. Now, and generations of people have lived there, haven't they? So you have stories that you can actually get through word of mouth that may not be written down anywhere? Um, well, particularly the Koori stories. Um, but the a lot of it is actually very well recorded, the local stories, because the um, the first, I think it was the first shopkeeper, and this is a bit vague but was actually the also the correspondent for the Maitland Mercury which was the local newspaper so there's lots about Wollumbi because he was writing what he knew um so there's an amazing amount of stuff and, and a lot of stuff that's being donated to the museum is donated by you know families who are clearing out the the attic and found great aunt Fanny's old saddle there's lots of things in the museum. I, go, I walk around and think, oh, that was in the cedar cutter. That was in, <laughs> in all the different books. Yeah, and these correspondents in these newspapers in the early days, as you said, they wrote about what they knew, but you also got when there was big floods and when there was big fires and when it rained and who died when and all those kinds of things. So oh, you yes. get a very good idea for the seasons. And the other, the other thing I'm, I'm lucky enough to have is um, a copy of the diary that belonged to the first um, minister in Wollumbi. But his, his area actually extended to the central coast and out to um, Maitland and Morpeth and everything else. And some of it's mind-blowingly boring, but it sort of, it does stay, you know, stopped at... Archie's place and we had the most beautiful peach pie so great okay so I know that they had peaches growing in the gardens things like that which again is back to putting in a bit of color as you were saying yeah and uh, for our international listeners um, as you all know our history doesn't go back all that far Uh, but for us here in Australia uh, we have our Aboriginal history and we're finding out a lot more about it every day with our 60,000 years but European settlement I noticed I was down in Sydney in the rocks in the last holidays and a lot of that beautiful old history is being sanitized and you can't actually get the feel for it anymore because it's all been beautified and there's really fancy shops there. Where you are, you would still have the authentic, uh, as you said, all the authentic artefacts in your little museum. Well, and in the, and in the buildings as well. The, um, yes, it's, it, it's, all, it's all there and there's so many records of everything. There's the, you know, there's ledgers from the old shops and, yeah. There's masses of stuff. You can bury yourself in there for days on end. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any advice for our, our uh, listeners who are thinking of delving into historical fiction? Where do you stop? Where do you stop research? <laughs> Never. I've, I've just submitted my, my next book. And um, I was out with, there's a, a, a group of, um, there's a new um group called fire sticks which is um going back to the original way that the curries maintained the the bush and with these cool burns rather than things like that and people are talking and they're chatting around and i suddenly went oh my god that's wrong 
I'd got something wrong, definitely in the book that's just gone in. So I end up with a piece of paper on the wall. Remember when the edits come back, this, this, this. And I picked up one in, in I think it's, yeah, it was in The Naturalist's Daughter. I'd got them, I was relying on my knowledge and I'd got them in Sydney going past Fort Macquarie. And then I discovered that it had actually been turned into a tram station by then. And I picked it up in the final round of edits. <laughs> so no, researching never stops. And it is really difficult, everyone, to get the timelines right. We, we're very, very lucky that we have uh, some excellent researchers uh, coming before us and that we're actually finding that the women's stories are being written about and it started in about the 70s or 80s where we started to get some really meaty stories around our prostitutes and our barmaids and all those kinds of people who are actually really strong women. Tilly Devine. Um, there's a, I think I, I think it was 1850, late 1850s in I think and George Street in Sydney. The majority of the buildings were owned by women, which the majority of the businesses were owned by women. But you have to remember too that, that, that um, it was easier once somebody had uh, served their sentence if their wife either came with them or joined them later. The wife was more able to open the business because she had no convict record, you see. So often it was a way to get around that. So women have been very, very, very significant in Australian business forever. Yeah, and we quite yeah. often... Yeah, we quite often find them up on stations after the husband died or ran off with his girlfriend or whatever they did. You find women running some of these big stations and and really, I guess, carrying out some jobs that I wouldn't have even thought was possible. But the more you delve into the history, you find that women are, are quite resilient. Uh, and the reason I, I bring women up so much is because I found some research of yours and it was... Um, called Stepping Away from Romance and Focusing on um, the Historical. You have some, you seem to have a love of collecting history books that I found as I, as I fossicked around a bit. Yes. <laughs> you keep your eyes open. Um, always, always, always. The um, local historian, Carl Poipo, who's a very good friend of mine, has the most amazing library unbelievable he he's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books many of them are first edition and many of them go back a long time um so it's a bit of a reciprocal thing or it's also a bit of one up and shoot hey look what i found in the bookshop <laughs> so it's uh, yeah the books are books are lovely i found a lovely one down at the market it was quite a while ago about makeup i wonder if that was the one you're talking about and I also somebody get and then now people started giving me books, which is lovely. I've I've got a really interesting one that's um, what have I done with it? I don't know where it is. Um, it's the handbook that was given to surgeons aboard ship, and which is fantastic because you get how they treated concussion. Concussion wasn't called concussion then, you know, and all those sorts of things. So yeah. Yeah, so you've got a lot to do, everyone, if you're going to write historical fiction and you want to be authentic. Uh, there are so many places that you can pick up these little tidbits. Um, and I think, T, you mentioned earlier, advertisements are a wonderful, wonderful place to mm. go. 
you actually get who was running what business when. Um, another book that I wanted to very quickly bring up because I was just fascinated with it is uh, Their Chastity Was Not Too Rigid at Leisure Times oh. in Early Australia. It was just a beautiful book. I, yes, I, so I still haven't got to that. I only sent my, I wasn't allowed to touch it until I sent my story in, which was last Saturday. Um, that is um, Carl Hoyper, the historian I was talking about. Um, I usually meet him on a Friday down at the pub for a few glasses of red wine. He came in with a grin from ear to ear and said, look what I found on my bookshelf. I think this is right up your alley. <laughs> See, it, you've got to you've got to um, be friends with the right people. Now, I know uh, Kate Forsyth. She's been on the podcast before, everyone, and she actually does these wonderful his, uh, history trips or research trips over to England and Scotland and all those wonderful places. Takes her children and delves back to the fifteenth, sixteenth, fourteenth century. Um, and I noticed she's doing it again on her latest novel. I think I noticed she was up to ten thousand words on. I think it was the Blue Rose or something like that. You're almost lucky in that your research is combined to Australian history. Yes, I, I, I have in this in the naturalist author. I've uh, gone back to my. I'm, in case you can't tell, I'm English, um, and so some of that story takes place in in England and in Cornwall. Um, but I spent the first twenty plus years of my life there, so that's sort of I thought that was all right. But it is easier not to have to travel so far. I think my travelling days are over actually. <laughs> Uh, now we're talking the naturalist daughter it is set over two centuries I don't think I'm giving anything away in that um, it's very careful two characters one in 1808 and one in 1908 can I go that far yes absolutely definitely that's in the blue that's because that's (laughs) all I know (laughs) oh well it it, yes it's two it's two characters um and one of them and it centers around a sketchbook a sketchbook is donated to the library and somebody goes to get it and basically it's the story of the sketchbook um one of my most one of the best things when you're when i'm this is a sort of going back to the research thing i love it when i find a line anywhere that says an unknown person did this then i have my main character so in the um, Naturalist Daughter, I found something that said um, Sir Joseph Banks was sent a platypus pelt by an unknown, can't remember what he was, but an un- unknown person. Um, and John Hunter is credited with sending the first one, which was actually a couple of years later. So that's where the story started. Yeah. And the no, one I'm... I just... Yeah, sorry. Sorry. The one I've just, um, I've just submitted to my publisher is, um, again, I found a line that said that um, somebody's journals were translated by an unknown source, and I thought, gotcha. Now, I <laughs> had anything. You're not, doing, you're not um, historically inaccurate because nobody knows who it was. Yeah. Now, you heard the tip here first, everybody. Um, that's how you can find your characters uh, for your historical novels, which is, which is actually really interesting and, and a very good way to go about it. Uh, old photographs, do you, do you rely much on those? Yes, definitely. Love old photographs. Um, of course, you've got to be careful that, yeah, I mean, you can't use them going too, back too far because I think it was, what, 1847 that they first started. I think that was when the first photographers opened in Sydney. So I've also got. Um, 
I'd sing the naturally still show. I can't remember what's in. Um, I have a very old daguerreotype that was given to me by my great great aunt. And so things like that tend to have cameo appearances in my books. There's a lot of things that'll, you know, that I like or I found or I've seen. It's a bit like things down at the museum. So, yes, photographs are great. And photographs are always fantastic for clothes as well. Do you feel that your writing is getting stronger? I know I read a review about it was one of your advanced copies of or advanced readers or review readers on The Naturalist's Daughter and she said it's the best thing that you've ever written. Do you think that's a natural progression because your stories are getting richer uh, in detail the more you find out? Um, I also think it's a, it's, writing's like anything else, the more practice, the more you do it. And, and also I think it becomes, it, it, it becomes easier or you become more confident and therefore I think that reflects in the story. Because you write big um, stories and you write um, complex, I would say suggest complex stories as well that have, have quite a bit of meat in them. And then you've got to add on that, hist- I wouldn't say a historical layer because that's the that's the guts of your stories. Uh, you you certainly are, do you think you'll ever get to the point where you're writing sagas? We were talking about that last week, how we love sagas and those really, really, I guess, generational stories. Are your stories heading that way? Well, the naturalist author is slightly generational I'm, it's yes i suppose it, it is a family saga the the one i've just submitted is very much family orientated but i am really enjoying this um, split timeline mm-hmm. game at the moment i think that's fantastic great yeah. fun but you have to be very careful not to trip yourself up i liken and- it to um cryptic crosswords <laughs> Uh, and that's when you really got to start plotting everybody because you never know where you're going to end up if you lose control of something like that i'm guessing I think I don't. I think it's um, it's as easy to lose control with a continuous timeline as it is with a split timeline. Um, it's just it's more in more in where you place the chapters as you skip backwards and forwards because you don't want to give anything away. You see that gets a bit tricky. Hmm. Yeah. So, advice to people coming along behind you who who love the idea of his, historical research, who love um, going through trove and going to museums and all those kinds of things. Do you have any advice like where to start or is it different for everyone? I think you have to find a period that interests you. Um, I think it's very, it's not a good idea to jump on the bandwagon and you need some background in that, in that um in the in the time frame that you're going to set your story, I mean, I really, I quite enjoy reading um, ancient history, but I would never write a story set in ancient Rome. I just don't have the background, and it would take me far too long to research it. Mm. Yeah, I've come unstuck, everyone. I'll tell you now. I was writing the Timber Cutter's Daughters, set in far north Queensland, and my home knowledge base is Sydney for history. Um, because that's where I'm from, and I found myself and my characters in Brisbane. And you're exactly right, Tia. It's a nightmare because I just don't know anything about Brisbane when it when it was flood uh, floodplains, when the buildings were built, what happened to the town hall, all those kinds of details that you pick up over a 20, 30 year period about a place that you're in. Put yourself somewhere alien, and you've really got to start digging and starting again, haven't you? 
Well, I suppose it's no different to Kate Forsyth going to Europe. So you <laughs> yeah, but... go to Brisbane. Get yourself to Brisbane. <laughs> oh, she's very, she's very good. Um, when I grow up, I'm going to be just like Kate Forsyth. Uh, I do, I do love her stories. Uh, yes, now, <laughs> now I wanted to speak to you very, very briefly about your tools. Now I noticed that you use Scrivener and then transfer it out to Word at some part of the process. How do you manage Scrivener? I have no doubt that I barely scratch the surface of it. <laughs> I, it's great for the um, it's great for the research from the research point of view because you can have all of your you know links to this that and the other in one one place. I used to use Evernote, um, and basically I use Scrivener now for that. Um, and I like particularly if you're writing a split timeline I like being able to shift the scenes around really easily but I can't do the final draft in Scrivener I have to put it in Word it just doesn't work for me yeah I know you can lots of people do but I can't so it's a question of what I can't really concentrate on the punctuation and stuff unless it's in Word um so I think it was Alison Stewart said that that um Scrivener is a is a um, a management tool as opposed to and, and that's very true with the historical stuff and it's so you know you have a direct link to the web page that you found and there's nothing worse than getting the final set of edits back and an editor has queried a date or something and you've got I've got no idea where I found that it's happened <laughs> <laughs> well the kids at school they just put the sentence in google and google would tell them um it's amazing what you um they can do there nowadays isn't it yes it's um the other thing is is um keeping a timeline as well i'm not very good at that my timeline's so a bit of a disaster sometimes not the the period of history is fine but it's the you know how many days it took them to do something and i tend to skip over it so um, I find in Scrivener I can, you know, I sort of date them, date each scene, and then when I move it around I have to change the dates and things like that. So it's good for that. But, yeah, so Scrivener, while you're researching it, until definitely until the first draft's done, and then for me I go into Word. Yeah, and we're, and we're spoiled, everybody. We, we've got Trove now. We've got our research at our fingertips. Uh, you mentioned, Tia, that I didn't pick up on that. Having trusted friends uh, to talk to, um, shoot ideas off, you talked about your friend who's the book collector who you have two glasses of red wine with. Having someone that you can trust and go to, would that be something that you would advise uh, writers to do to, to make sure that they, they butt, not, not so much buddy up, but have, I guess, a trusted sounding board? Yeah, I, I, I'm very lucky. I have several. I mean, the, the, the locals come up to me and say, a great new idea for our next story. Not my next story, our next story. See, so they've sort of taken possession of it. Um, yes, I think it's really important, but it's asking an awful lot. I also have chief researcher number one who listens and helps and does this and then there's everybody has a name um then there's chief engineer who i go to for all of my sort of motor car needs and things like that um as far as stories are concerned he worked overtime on the naturalist daughter and then there's chief wardrobe mistress she's um 
she actually is the wardrobe mistress for the local um, dramatic society, but she's fantastic. <laughs> um, so there's, yeah, you need a lot of people, but that's research, isn't it? I mean, we don't only use books. We don't only use a computer. We use, use people as well. Yeah. And actually, I yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I noticed in the um, cedar cutter that you did mention your. And this is the cedar cutter, everybody. Uh, I did notice that you did um, acknowledge your wardrobe lady. Yes, that's Linda. She is in that one. I, she gave me a lot of help on that. But we had a lot of fun actually designing a few dresses and what sort of material we could have. And if you did have a nasty brown dress, how could you turn it into something that might look remotely all right on a forty-year-old woman? Um, yeah. So it's she's she's fabulous. They, they everybody is, and they're so interested and they're so keen to help. Yeah. Now that's the level of research. I'm going to let you go now, Tia, because I know I've taken up a lot of your time. But everybody, just to unpack what Tia just said, it's really, really interesting. The level of detail that a writer will go to, uh, to to get the story right for the rest of us. Uh, Tia, you said that you had a lot of fun taking a nasty brown dress and turning it into something. Now, in, a, in historical fiction, that is a layer of detail that writers actually need to get right. They have to feel feel their stories. They have to want to care about what their their uh, characters wear. Uh, we we have a little bit of a bugbear here about writers who turn around their stories in twenty five days or less. This stuff takes time to to get the layers right, doesn't it? It takes a lot of time. I think. You were saying earlier that my stories have sort of got longer and more complicated. I'm basically one story a year now. I can't do them any quicker than that and do justice to it. Yeah. Doing justice to your story, everyone. Again, uh, that's what we're about here at Writer on the Road. Um, writing excellence takes time. Getting the layers uh, of your story takes time. Doing the research, it doesn't matter whether it's historical or contemporary, you really have to know your stuff. And I'm not talking about our beautiful romance authors who, who do write to a schedule, but I'm talking about, I guess, our, our media stories and our, and our keeper stories, the ones that we want to have on our bookshelves for a long time. And hopefully a lot of us want to write the same kinds of stories that you write, Tia. Uh, last question, I promise you, you take great pride in your art. Is that true? Yes, I do. Um, I hope I'm continuing to improve as well. I think it's, I think it's important to care about what you do. Mm -hmm. And you recommend that for your, oh, sorry, for my listeners, do you recommend that they, they take pride in their craft and, and put it out there to be, I guess, the best that they can be? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I get for asking yes, no questions, everybody. I'm a teacher, T is a teacher, and we both know we shouldn't be doing that stuff. But I blew my last question on a yes, no answer, and that's what I got. Uh, Tia, thank you very much for being so beautiful. I notice we haven't discussed the title of your new book. Are we allowed to know that, or is that still uh, a secret? The one I've just submitted. Well, it has a working title. It's called The Armistice Promise. Oh, oh, okay, The Armistice Promise. Mm. Okay, well, we'll leave it on that. Everybody, um, The Naturalist Daughter is coming out in December. It looks like our perfect summer read. Uh, we're kicking into the long, lazy days of summer here in Australia and what better way to shout ourselves a Christmas present. I thoroughly recommend that you go back, everyone, and read The Cedar Cutter. The Wollombi area of um, New South Wales is absolutely beautiful and you get a real feel for it if you read uh, Tia's books. Her research is, is amazing. The depth of detail is amazing and you can 
and feel like you're there. The other thing I want to mention before I finish and run out of breath is Tia has given us a real slice of modern day life of the Wollombi area because we've had a bird chirping in the background the whole time we've been talking. What kind of bird is it, Tia? I've got no idea. I've got no idea at all. And I've even got the doors closed. <laughs> and he's having a lovely time and we're very well, we're very glad to have him along. Everybody, that's it from Rider on the Road for another week. Uh, thank you, Tia. Thank you.